Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 170 of my 16 music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So welcome all you to part two of episode number 170 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, Orange Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is, I'm going to give you a description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 26-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And uh, each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist in the 60s and split the show in two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and then do my own personnel, so I'm going to arrange the song, which will include the chords, belly, and licks. And the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, what see the song is recorded at, whether it be the session musicians or band members themselves, talk about the songwriters that wrote the song, the producer that produced it, and the studio the song is recorded at, and the history behind it, the musicians that played on the song, and also the record label songs released at, and the peak position song when it was originally on Billboard Hot 100 charts when it first came out, the year when the song was released, all that is in the second part of the show. Now, before you move on this with, with this week's podcast, I have some really cool updates for you guys. First update I wanted to say is that I shot my next music video. Yes. Uh, for the song Turquoise Apricot, I shot the music video for it. I'm very excited to put that out. Um, but I also want to let you guys know I'm actually going to re-record Turquoise Apricot because I played it to my current uh, producer engineers, and they think that it sounds kind of demo-y, and they think they could, pro- they could probably use to get re-recorded. So, um, you know, I'm not... Now that now that that's that's kind of the plan, I'm not exactly sure if I'm even gonna put out this music video, or maybe I will, maybe I won't. We'll see. But um, you know, we we it's it's done already, so I'll have to see about whether or not I'll we will put out that music video. But um, other than that, the 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 my next EP is coming along very very well. Um, I've done three sessions for it so far. I have another one coming up in the, at the end of this month. And by the way. You know, if you guys want to see me play the songs off my upcoming EP, please come see me play a trip in Santa Monica. My set time is at uh, 9 p.m. and there's no cover; it's free, and you'll get to hear the songs off my upcoming EP that I'm going to release very, very soon. Plus, songs off my previous EP, so it's going to be a great time. You, you all should come. And uh, I was hoping to have a band play with me at this particular one, but it's not looking like it's panning out like that um, because I still haven't done a single rehearsal with them and only one of them has learned my songs. So it's it's really not, uh, it's just not working out with regards to me playing with a band for this particular show. But I'll have backing tracks and I'll be solo and it'll be great. I mean, you'll get to hear my songs off my upcoming EP and I'm not sure if uh, if I'm going to play another show after this, um, you know, after my, uh, after once I once I once I play this one, I'm not exactly sure if I'm gonna play another one to, you know, because I might wait until after my until after my EP is out. But um, I'm very excited to uh, to you know to play the show, and you know, 
another thing I wanted to let you guys know is that, uh, you know, I do have, aside from the EP that's out and the EP that's coming out very soon, I have a bunch of old songs that I wrote like many years ago when I was like uh, 16, 17 years old, um, when I was a junior, senior in high school. And uh, I have all of them recorded and they're all sitting on my hard drive, but I don't I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I mean, you know, it's funny because they represent, you know, a time in my life that's very, very different than the time that I'm in right now. Uh, it's it's a you know, they represent a, a, a period of time in my life, which is not the completely different from where I'm at now. So I'm not exactly sure how I would feel about putting them out. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you would probably like to hear these songs, but you know, the thing is, when you put out music onto the streaming platforms with DSPs, a lot of times they'll assume it's like new material that hasn't been uh, that hasn't been uh, that's new stuff that just that was written, recorded recently. And of course, like you know, you could you could release songs, and you know, no one would know exactly when they were, when they came out. But for me, I'm in a different place in my life than when I wrote these songs right now, and I feel like. They don't just represent where I'm at right now in my life. They represent where I was when I was 16, 17 years old, but definitely not right now because a lot of them are songs, lyrics I actually didn't write when I used to have uh, a writing partner slash songwriting teacher who helped me out with my a lot of my earlier songs. And two, they represent a time when I actually wanted a, a serious girlfriend. I don't want a serious girlfriend right now. I just want to have fun. And do like friends with benefits, but back when I wrote these songs, I actually wanted a serious relationship. Um, so I'm not exactly sure if I'm gonna put out these songs. I might just save them for sync licensing purposes. But they were on the streaming platforms, but then they got taken down. So I'm not too sure if I want to put them up again. But we'll see. But um, but my new EP is gonna represent exactly where I'm at now, which is really exciting. Because they're all songs that I wrote in 2021. Plus, you'll hear a long extended version, Turquoise Apricot. So it's going to be great. Um, you know, we'll see about uh, releasing uh, that music video. And yeah, so it's very, very... I have, I have a lot of exciting stuff happening. And plus, you're going to want to subscribe to the premium version of my podcast to hear all the latest interview episodes I'm doing right now. You'll hear a lot of great information from a lot of from straight from the source from a lot of these really cool sixties musicians, and you'll hear a lot of really great stories that you won't hear anywhere else. So you definitely want to jump on that. The link to that in the description is episode of this podcast. And uh, let's move on with this week's show. And don't forget, I'm playing at the end of this month on the twenty seventh on a Sunday night trip in Santa Monica. It's a fr- it's a free show. I'm on at nine, so I'm playing for forty five minutes too. So you get to hear a lot of these songs off my upcoming EP plus ones off my last one. So please come down, and I'd love to see you there. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's artist and song, which was Mitch Wright and Detroit Wheels. And let's talk about. Uh, the song Devil with the Blue Dress on. But before we even get into all that, we have to talk about the genre that the song is in. Because I've d- I dived into this genre once before, but you guys may not remember because it's probably been a while. Um, but if, you, if you're not very familiar with this genre of music, um, it basically, the genre of music that the song falls into is Blue-Eyed Soul. And if you don't, and if you're thinking, Sam, what are you talking about when you say Blue-Eyed Soul? I've never heard that term before ever. Does it make any sense to me? What are you talking about? What What do you mean by blue-eyed soul? What does it mean? Well, to be honest with you, the term blue-eyed soul is basically uh, derived from a very specific genre of music that was, you know, basically done by white musicians. But the thing is, is that 
there were white musicians who were heavily influenced by black rhythm and blues musicians. You know, African-American musicians that specifically played rhythm and blues and rock and roll and soul music. And a lo- th- these, mus- these white musicians were in love with these black musicians and tried to sound the best as possible. They, they, it was their best attempt at trying to sound black is basically what I'm saying. You know, they basically did, they did their best to sound just like the black musicians that they love so much. And while this may seem appear to be inauthentic, you know, because they're white and why are they trying to sound black? They're just trying to, you know, steal from the black musicians, which is a tale as old as time. I mean, it's been, you know, the thing is, is that most music historians have covered the whole thing about white musicians stealing from black musicians. So it's a, you know, it's it's basically it's you know, it's it's something that has been done over and over and over again. And, you know, and a lot of people will hate on the white musicians from stealing from the black musicians. But the thing is, is that. You know, the, 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 the white sound was still slightly different from the black sound, even though it was close. It was still different. So, you know, you know, th- and the fact that they were basically, you know, influenced by a lot of these black musicians and trying to, you know, sound like them just show, goes to, to show you how, you know, great these black musicians were. And it just goes to show you how good these white musicians were for trying to sound like them. You know, because if you know the fact, you know, because n- to be honest with you, not every white group from the '60s sounded black. You know, a lot of white groups in the '60s sounded as white as they possibly could be, and they did not sound black at all. So, uh, you know, it's really a special thing for white musicians to to attempt to try to have this black sound. You know, and it was a really and it was a really sort of powerful sort of sound, and it you know and it went and it went on through the '70s and '80s. I mean. Heck, you had like Hall and Oates, and you had you know Bobby Caldwell, who were big in the late seventies, early eighties, to try to have that black sound. And it really, there's two versions of it. If if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of it, but basically, the first version is the soul, the blue eyed soul, which is more ballads, more you know longer notes, whole notes, big you know breathy, very powerful gut you know gutsy gutsy performances where they're just belting on the top of their lungs and just really doing soulful ballads. And then there's straight up party rock and roll, which is what Mitch Ryan and Detroit Wheels were. I mean, they were basically a part a college party rock band doing rhythm and blues rock songs, you know, just to get people up and going and get people on a dance floor. I mean, basically that's what that's what they were. And those are based that was basically the two essential ingredients to that genre of music. I mean, the Righteous Brothers were basically the prime example of that. They did both. They did those powerful, you know, hit you in the gut ballads that were very like power pop ballads of the seventies and eighties. And they also did, you know, get get your ass in the dance floor party rock and roll music that was influenced by rhythm and blues that the that the black musicians musicians were doing before them. And that's and more or less that's what Mitch Ray and the Detroit Wheels were. They were more or less in that in that vein. And, you know, and they were a true blue-eyed soul band because most of the stuff they did was originally recorded by black musicians, except for Little Lad and Loopy Lou. Everything they did was recorded by black musicians originally. So, you know, and also they, they did some really obscure songs that, you know, that I think did a lot to promote a lot of these black musicians. And I feel like, you know, without them, I don't know if we would hear songs like you know, uh, Devil with a Blue Dress on or C.C. Ryder, some of the other stuff that they did, you know, because, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could say that Mitch Ryder was influenced by Little Richard and he's kind of a knockoff of him, but still, he had a great voice and the energy that these guys had on these records was unbelievable. I mean, the performances they gave, I mean, the bass player for Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Rules was amazing. The guitar, lead guitar players were insane. I mean, 
I mean, these guys were just great, great musicians, really good keyboard parts, both piano and organ, and they were just fantastic. And if you think about it, the other cool thing about, you know, uh, Mitch Rary and Detroit Wheels is that if you're a classic rock fan and you've ever paid attention to, like, Detroit rock and roll, I'm talking Bob Seger, Iggy, Iggy Pop, I'm talking, um, you know, that whole thing where you had, you know, Marilyn Manson. I mean, that whole Detroit rock and roll thing that people associate a lot of, you know, Gen X people and some older, you know, some younger baby boomers associate themselves with. Um, you know, th the thing is, is that, um, you know, that, you know, the Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels were the original Detroit rock and roll band. I mean, I mean, Bob Seger was around at the same time as them, but he wasn't having success everywhere. Did Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels were the original Detroit rock and roll band before Ted Nugent, before the Amboy Dukes, before all that. You had Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels. They were the most, the original commercial successful Detroit rock and roll group. I mean, these guys were there before anybody else. And there was also at a time when Detroit was mainly Motown. It was all Motown, but these guys came from Detroit. And they were white. They were white guys, so they had no. They had no place on the Motown roster. But they did record a Motown song. We'll get into that a little bit later. But basically, you know, they were the original Detroit rock and roll group. And now we're gonna get into their history. Okay, so Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels originally consisted of Mitch Ryder and lead vocals, who whose real name was William Levice. Uh, that's what his real name was, and uh, they consisted of him on lead vocals, Jim McCarty on lead guitar. Uh, Jim McAllister on bass, who later got replaced by Earl Elliott, and John Bandajek on drums, and Joey Cooper on rhythm guitar. So that was basically Mitch Ray and the Detroit Wheels. That was the classic lineup of the group. And uh, again, they were, you know, they were basically, you know, they they were formed as they were formed in Detroit, right? That's basically where, uh, you know, they uh they they got their start. But they actually, even though they formed in Detroit, they actually went to New York actually because. You know, at the time, there really wasn't a place for white musicians in Detroit at that time. It was all for black music. It was all for Motown. That's basically, if you weren't black, it was hard to make it as a musician in Detroit at the time. So they got out of Detroit and basically went to New York, you know, because that's where you made it as a, as a musician at the time. If you're a white, sort of, and it was close by, so it, it made sense for them to go to, the, to, go to New York. And so they, they, they played in the village, and at the time... They consisted of, the group consisted of Jim McCarty, Earl Elliott bass, and John Banjek was a drummer. And basically, they, their original name was Billy Lee and the Rivieras. That was their original name, you know, because uh, Mitch Ryder's real name was William Levis, and he went at the time it was Bill Levis, and so they called themselves Bill Levis and the Rivieras. Um, they were discovered by Bob Crew. Now, if you don't know who Bob Crew is. You might want to go back and listen to the episodes of the Four Seasons because I talk about Bob Crew in there. But Bob Crew was a gay, flamboyant, very good producer who knew nothing about music, but was a very you know he was good at the logistical end of producing music, and he knew hit songs when he heard them. And he was the main producer for the Four Seasons at the time, but he just started his own label, Dino Voice Records. Uh, that was that was a new label he just started and. The, at the time, the only hit artist on Dino Voice was the Toys. Uh, they 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 had a group called they were a group called Love Lovers Concerto, but he was looking for other groups to sign, and so he discovered Billy Lee and the Rivieras. Now at the time, there was already Rivieras who had a who had a song called California Sun, so of course he had to change her name. 
So basically, what he di- what what they did is that uh, Mitch, I mean, sorry, Billy Levice, right, who was the original lead singer, he was he was known as Billy V and the Rivieres. He looked through a phone book and he and he saw a name Mitch Ryder in there. So I thought, okay, cool, I'll just use my name Mitch Ryder. So out of out of the phone book, he chose the name Mitch Ryder and they changed their name to the Detroit Wheels. That's how they got their name. Uh, was out of the phone book, right? And uh, they basically, um, they, you know, they got signed by Bob Crew to Dino Voice Records, and they went in the Stay Phillips in New York City at the time, which was a which was a New York recording studio. I believe it was in Manhattan. It was it was a it was a very popular New York recording studio, um, mainly for Bob Crew. Bob Crew was the main producer in New York at the time, and it was basically it was on Seventh Avenue between Fifty First and Fifty Second. That's where the studio was at the time. And that's where Mitch Ray and the Detroit Wheels recorded all of their big hits. Every single one was basically recorded at Stay Phillips in New York City, right? That was that was that was where they recorded, you know, Jenny Took a Ride, and that's where they also recorded um, you know, Devil with a Blue Dress on. Everything was done at Stay Phillips in New York with engineers like Harry 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 Yamark Yarmark and Gordon Gordy Clark. So Gordy Clark and Harry Yarmark were two engineers that engineered most of their stuff. So their first hit entry was actually also a medley. So this group had two big, huge hit songs as medleys. The first one they did was in 1965. They did a medley of two songs, uh, a blues song from the 1920s called C.C. Ryder, which was originally recorded by Ma Rainey in the 1920s. And then they, they combined that song with another song by another another Little Richard song called Jenny Jenny. So they basically did C.C. Ryder and Jenny Jenny combine them together and called the song Jenny's Secret Ride. And that was their first big hit in 1965, late 65, right? And basically um, what, what happened was that this is actually kind of a cool story. Um, when they were recording um, Jenny Took a Ride, they were doing it kind of a slow pace or sort of a mid-tempo kind of a way. I mean, it wasn't too crazy. But then when they were recording that song, Brian Jones and Keith Richards walked in the studio. And then when they walked in the studio, the band flipped out. They were like, oh, my God, Brian Jones and Keith Richards are here. What the fuck? This is insane. And so they started playing the song in a very, very fast tempo. And they were like, whoa, what, what's happening? Like, and they started playing it really, really fast. And that became the sound of the band, this really up-tempo uh, you know, sound, which basically was supposed... And this song that they were recording was supposed to be a B-side. So Bob, Bob Crew originally wanted this song to be a B-side, but then when, Mick, when uh, Keith Richards and, and Brian Jones walked to the studio when they were recording the song... And they started speeding up and playing it. They were like, "Oh my God! Like we, this, this is a good. This has to be an A side because, you know, they they basically walked in and the and the, it was a live reaction. They they saw them play. I was like, "Whoa, we got <laughs> we got <laughs> we got to speed this song up because we're nervous now. Freaking Brian Jones and Keith Richards, the Rolling Stones are watching us now. We need to speed up." So that so they recorded that and you know and they released a single. It became a big hit. In late '65, early '66, and they were a huge again. I mean, they were basically a big group at that point. I mean, they were playing on Hullabaloo, you know, just you know, performing, you know, their their hits, their their latest hit single, and they were and they were a pretty pretty established group at that point. And uh, I think they mainly used Barry Goldberg for the keyboard parts of the song. 
I'm not sure he's playing keys on Jane Tickeride. It may have been Barry Gold, maybe been someone else, but they, that's who they mainly use for playing keys, right? So yeah, so that they released that single became a very big hit. And then, you know, they, they released another song, which is actually a cover of a Righteous Brothers song written by Bill Manley called Little Latin Loopy Lou. That did okay, peaked at number 17. And then they had some some bombs. And then they released this song. This song, Jenny Took a Ride. I mean, sorry, Devil with the Blue Dress song. So uh, this was their this was their second big hit after Jenny Took a Ride, another medley. Now, what I'm going to do here is that I'm actually going to play you guys a couple... I'm gonna hear. I'm gonna play you guys what the original versions of these two songs sounded like that they combined and did for basically, um, you know, uh, their you know what they did is that they they basically covered both uh, "Devil the Blue Dress" song, which was originally recorded by Shorty Long, ironically for the Motown label, not not for the Motown main label, but one of their subsidiary labels. And it was a song written by Mickey Stevenson and him, Frederick Long, as that was his real name, but a stage name of Shorty Long. And then they also covered a Little Richard song, which was Golly Miss Molly. I'm going to play you both songs, a little bit of it, just so that way you can guys see kind of what they did here. Because the thing is, is that they, you know, they, they, they're the creativity that they put into these two medleys is that they didn't just do the two medleys. They didn't just do both the songs exactly the same. They weaved these two songs together and they did like a completely different version of both songs that was different. But, it, you know, it, when you listen to these two songs together, you know, it just makes the, all, the, all the sense in the world as to why they weave these two songs together. And, uh, you know, and the, the original version of Devil the Blue Dress song is quite different from their version. Now I'm going to play it for you to see, to show you what it sounds like. The original version was quite bluesy. Oh my god, that's one of the dirtiest blues records I've ever heard in my entire life. I mean, man, the the Funk Brothers just laying and down thick on that record. I mean, they're just playing the bluesiest looks I've ever heard. To be honest with you, I mean, they're just getting real down home, real rootsy. I mean, that's completely different from the from as you can tell from from the version by Mitch Ray and Detroit Wheels. Completely different song. Oh yeah, just one hundred percent not the same as the as the original and now i'm going to play for you what good golly miss molly sounds like now if you're a seasoned rock historian you might have already heard this song if you've if you're familiar with 50s music but just in case you are here's the original by song by good golly miss molly Wow. Just, just, you can really hear the influences of how black music influenced white music at that time. Now, I want to say this not all white music from the 60s was influenced by black musicians. It's a common thing for people to think, oh, 
you know, all 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 white music from the sixties was influenced by black music from the sixties. And that's not always true because there was a lot of white stuff from the sixties that didn't sound black at all. I mean, if you listen to like Dean Martin or the Letterman or even like the Vogues and even some of those songs, I mean, none of that sounded, you know, uh, you can you can't really hear the influence of black music on, you know, on on those songs at all. And even like and there on the flip side of the coin, there's a lot of black musicians that sounded white. I mean, if you listen to like the Fifth Dimension, for instance, they sounded extremely white. The Supremes also sounded very white. I mean, there was a lot of black groups that sounded that just had a white sound. I mean, Nat King Cole was a great example. Johnny Mathis sounded extremely white. I mean, and and that was done so that way they can get airplay on the radio along with white musicians, you know. And um, I mean, you know, and yes, in the fifties. You know, yes, there were black musicians. I mean, there were white musicians that covered songs that black artists so that way they can become hits, and the 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 black the black songs wouldn't get played on regular top forty radio. But that changed in 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 the in the uh, in the in the early sixties because the the playing field basically became even in the early sixties. I mean, black musicians could get just as much radio airplay on the radio as much as white musicians. So, and and white music and black music kind of more from rock and roll like you've just heard in soul music like Benny King and the Drifters and it became it smoothed out it became a lot less rough edged it didn't become as threatening to you know you know older parents as as uh, as some of the early rock and roll stuff was so i mean you know things did change the playing field did even out but in the in the, in the early 50s it was like that i mean rock and roll was kind of threatening and doo-wop wasn't but rock and roll pretty much was um but that's kind of where things stood back then. I mean, Blue-Eyed Soul was a very important genre of music. Um, but before I end this sort of historical thing, I'm going to dive into a little bit more of the history of Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels before I end this podcast. So in December 1966, basically what happened was that um, Bob Crew wanted to work closely with, with Mitch Ryder. So they, you know, Mitch Ryder basically, you know, Essentially, you know, Bob Crew had this idea of Mitch Ryder becoming a full blue-eyed soul singer. So basically what they did is that, uh, they, you know, uh, Bob Crew put together, a, you know, a 10-piece band of white rhythm and blues musicians from Baltimore. This included Jimmy Wilson on trumpet, Bob Shipley on sax, Jimmy Lomas on sax, Don Linhoff on trombone, Frank Invernese Inver- on organ, and John Simos on on drums from Chicago, Bob Floss on guitar, Carmine Ryle on bass, and you know from Miami, Andy D on trumpet, and uh, you know John, I, Johnny I don't know his last name on lead guitar, and you know they 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 rehearsed for a month, and they at, at a dance studio called the Cheetah in a, in a nightclub on in Broadway in 53rd Street. And then basically they rehearsed, you know, playing during the Mitch Ryder show in 1967. Actually, Mitch Ryder was actually the last person to perform with Otis Redding before he died. He played the song, he performed some knock on wood with him on December 9th, 1967. And this was the night before Otis Redding died when basically a day later uh, he died in a plane crash with his band, The Bar Keys, in December 10th, 1967 in Madison, Wisconsin. So they play, actually played with Otis Redding on his last ever tour, the last ever gig he did at the at the on, on the upbeat TV show in Cleveland, Ohio, hosted by Don Webster. So basically, um, you know, he didn't really have too much success after in once the early nineteen seventies came about 
And, uh, you know, his career, you know, with, with the Detroit Wheels ended when the counterculture started in 1968 when things got really psychedelic. And uh, basically, you know, you know, he 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 he, he was uh, playing with Mike Thurnoff and John Stefan, who were hired as trumpet trumpet players for the horn section of this group. And uh, you know, he rec- they recorded the trumpet parts for Ry- Mitch Ryder's song "Ring My Bell." And you know, he, they wouldn't stations would not play the song because of sexual innuendos. And he had one hit single of basically, you know. Uh, you know, with with his with this group, and it was called "What Now, My Love," which is a cover version of his song, French song written by Gilbert Bacot. A bunch of people covered it, and with this, and it, it was basically it was a, the last single, last hit single he had, and um, the only original, you know, Detroit Wheels member, John Banachek, you know, was left, and then they they had other members, Steve Hunter, Robert Gillespie, and Brett Tuggle, organist Harry Phillips, and bassist W R W R Cook. And they and they and they formed their own band actually in 1971, and they released a self-titled EP, and you know basically that that didn't really go anywhere. It only peaked out you peaked at 176 in 1972 in the Billboard 200 charts, Hot 200 album charts. So that did pretty bad actually. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know the thing that broke up Mitch Ryder and the Four Wheels. And one thing I want you to remember about this group is that the reason why they broke up. Is because essentially, um, you know, they, you know, they, you know, they, 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 they you know, so they basically they formed half of the group, the Detroit Wheels, um, you know, basically, you know, they formed a new band called Detroit, and they covered a Lou Reed song, and basically, uh, they, and they and actually featured the the first couple lines of the group featured, uh, you know, singer Rusty Day. And, you know, basically they included, you know, before Leonard Skinner's, before Leonard Skinner's, they included one of the original members of that group, Steve Krog, Daddy Gaines, and guitarist Bill Hodson, and drummer Tex T. Mail Smith the Spinners, and Nathaniel Peterson Twin Dragons, and keyboard Terry Emery Moxie Band in Atlanta, and basically, and Steve Gaines died in the, sp- the, the plane crash on October 1977, October 20, 1977. And basically, you know, it was the actually uh, some of the members of Leonard Skinner played in the group that was kind of the the Detroit Wheels group after the Detroit Wheels broke up. It was a group that that they formed once Mitch Ryder went solo. But the thing I want you to keep in mind about Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels and why they weren't a successful group is well, I mean, they were a successful group, but this is actually why they broke up um, because uh, you know the thing that happened is that you know. Bob Crew became very interested in working specifically with um, uh, Mitch Ryder as a solo artist. He wanted to develop him as a potential blue-eyed solo singer, you know, and he wanted him to have that sound as, an, as a solo artist. But as you can see, he didn't really have the success outside of the Detroit Wheels. But there was a lot of portrayal going on, too, because, I mean... A lot of the guys in the group were kind of mad that, you know, Mitch Ryder went on his own and without them and made records without him. So they were kind of pissed off at him, to be honest with you. And there was a lot of hard feelings involved with the, with their breakup. And it was a very difficult thing that they went through. But this is something a lot of other bands went through. I mean, a, you know, having a band is a lot like having a partner, like a like a serious romantic relationship. It's a very similar thing. I mean, like, you know, it, you know, you know, you know, people break up with their girlfriends or boyfriends. Well, bands break up with each other. It's a very similar kind of a thing. You know, it's a commitment. It's a time commitment. 
and you have to be there for them through good times and bad. I mean, bands are just like boyfriends and girlfriends, the same kind of thing, really. You know, and, you know, bands break up as, you know, just like boyfriends and girlfriends break up. It's a very similar thing, you know. So, um, you know, it's, it's something it's something that very much happened with Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels. But Mitch Ryder still sings in this day and he sounds killer. Sounds really, really good as a, as a singer today. You can still do the songs in the original keys, and I believe Barry Goldberg played keys on Devil's Blue song. That's him playing piano organ on that record. And it's also kind of interesting the fact that this is the kind of project that Bob Crew was was doing. You know, while he was also producing the Four Seasons at the same time. I mean, he was doing something completely different because the Four Seasons weren't really a blue-eyed soul band. They were more of a '60s pop group, but this was more of a hardcore balls the wall rock and roll band. These guys were a party rock group. Essentially, that's what they were. I mean, that's the the, the genesis of Metro and Detroit Wheels. I mean, they were. That's basically what they were. So, um, that concludes this week's episode. So that concludes part two, of episode number one hundred and seventy of my sixty music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you learned some really interesting stuff about this group, Mitch Ray and Detroit Wheels, you never knew anything about them. You never knew about this genre of music, Blue Eyed Soul, and you're fascinated by it, and you want to tell me about it, please email me at samltwoolieicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram, iheartoldies, and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsvisa.net. As per usual, things you can check out in the description of this episode of this podcast are linked to my last EP. I'm recording the next EP right now. I have like I think I have a couple more sessions left before uh, this EP is done recording-wise. I'll let you guys know when that is uh, is done. Um, but I'm just recording it right now. And like I said, I have one more show coming up, a trip in Santa Monica. Not this weekend, but next weekend on the Sunday the 27th. My set time is 9. There's a $10 cover. But love to see you guys at the... Um, at the, uh, at the at the show because I'll, I'll be performing songs off my upcoming EP the four that are going to be on this upcoming EP so I'm very excited to um, play those songs for you guys and yeah so also you can check out uh, definitely let me know what you think of the last EP too love to hear your thoughts on that please email me at samlcwilliamicloud.com let me know what you thought of those songs off my last EP because I put a, I love those songs they're really really good and you can also check out, uh, you know, the last music video put out, too. I just shot a music, another music video, so that's going to be out very, very soon. I'll let you guys know when, it, when that is out. Haven't gotten the final cut back, but I imagine I'll get it back very soon. And, uh, yeah, so uh, you can email me at uh, samltwilliamicloud.com and let me know who thought of that last music video. That's super cool. I can't, can't wait for you guys to see the next one I'm about to put out very, very soon. And, yeah, so... Um, you can also check out the two interviews I did last year with Honk Magazine, Shout Out LA. Ho- I'm hoping to do more interviews soon. Um, I haven't got hit up by any publications yet, but I'm hoping that I'll get to do more interviews at some point in the near future. Um, for now, you can check out those. So you can, you know, those, those, those links to those in the description of this episode of this podcast. Love, love if you guys could read those. Let me know what you think of those. And if you want to meet me in LA after reading those interviews, please reach out to me. I'd love to meet you in person. Um, you know, let's go get coffee. Let's go get lunch. Let's go do something. Um, also, please check out the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. You'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some of the ones I've mentioned in interview episodes. I'd love it if you guys could uh, could could check those out. I really, really dig it if you guys could check out those playlists. I'm very, very excited because I update, I update those every week. Now, for the... Um, for the for the you for the premium interview episodes, I'm not sure if I'm gonna 
up 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 update those the playlists I have right now with those songs I talk about in the premium subscription interview episodes. I'm not sure, but I'll keep you guys posted once I create a playlist for those interview episodes. Cause I'm thinking about doing another playlist for those interview episodes, but we'll see. But for now, you can check those out in the description of this episode of this podcast, and you can check out the official Redbubble merch store for this podcast. There you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some of the ones I mentioned in interview episodes. I have some very good news for you guys. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to continue to do this podcast. I have the money for it now, finally. I don't have to raise any money for it. I'm very, very excited. I, I got the funds to be able to pay for this year, so that's really, really cool. Um, I'm very excited to keep doing this podcast for this for this for this upcoming year. It's going to be great. Can't wait to do that. And, and definitely, may, definitely, please go subscribe to the premium subscription version of this podcast because there you'll hear some really cool exclusive interview content that I, that's only going to be there and nowhere else. And you're going to hear some really cool stories behind the songs that I talk about in the show. And you're going to hear them straight from the horse's mouth from the guys that were there, the musicians, 60s musicians who were very successful and a lot of big hits back then so i uh, please go do that love it if you, you can check those out the link to that in the description of this episode of this podcast where you can sign up i'd recommend doing it through supercast um because i you know just just to get a taste of what's going to come up you're going to hear interviews from stan ziska lead singer of the, the, the background vocal group for dion the dell satins and you're going to hear interview from Don Danneman, which I just did this week, uh, the, one of the lead singer of the circle and the guy who played guitar for the band. So it's going to be, you're going to hear some really cool information there. So please go do that. So I'm Sam Williams, and thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, police, keep things grooving.